Hello everybody, Justin Bell here on Drive to Win, broadcasting from the Win Las Vegas, the founding partner of the Heineken Silver Grand Prix of Las Vegas coming up, can you believe it, in under 150 days and things are certainly warming up in Las Vegas in every way when it comes to the Grand Prix, especially here in the casino. Now, of course, uh, when it comes to commenting on the Canadian Grand Prix from just a couple of days ago, well, shocking news. Max Verstappen won. Can I go now? I mean, I think that's probably what I should do. But as you know, there's so much more to discuss than that. And helping me with that a bit later is, I'm very pleased to say, my guest is Alex Jacks, who is the official Formula One lead commentator on Formula One Live. And if you follow along on the amazing Formula One app, definitely worth the money, uh, you get to hear his voice. It is a global broadcast. And Alex is literally one of those guys that knows Formula One from the top to the bottom. So I, I have so many things I want to talk to him about. I'm going to save that till a little bit later. Uh, but I just got back from the Le Mans 24 Hours. We talked about it before I went. An outstanding weekend in every way. 350,000 people on site to win, to watch Ferrari win with their beautiful hypercar, two cars. I mean, it was just stunning to watch them come in at the end there. Obviously, Porsche, Peugeot, Cadillac, they all did very well, put their cars through everything. But I think what an amazing result it was uh, emotionally to lift Ferrari up, uh, to win at the famous Le Mans 24 Hours. And we saw it reflected in their results this weekend a bit at Canada. So we'll get into that too. Uh, but everything here at the win, as I said, is gearing up towards the Formula One. And when I walked into the hotel last night, Right in front of me was this beautiful black and gold Formula One car. So I had to do a bit of digging. And you, if you're in Vegas, you've got to come and check it out. It's one of these very special TDF prepared Formula One cars. This is a 2011 championship championship uh, competing chassis. It didn't didn't win a race, but it's right there in the uh, in the lobby. And TDF, it's quite an extraordinary program. Formula One cars are so thorough, such thoroughbreds. You, you need an entire legion of engineers just to start them. Well, what they do, ex-Formula One engineers and mechanics and crew chiefs have come together to create this company. They simplify the electronics, they all the running gear, the engines are detuned, and you can actually start it pretty much like you could a road car, just hit the button and go, let everything warm up. And pretty much allowing wealthy collectors to have the opportunity to experience what it's like to drive a Formula One car. Just think about that. It looks beautiful. It's actually uh, on loan from Tom O'Gara with O'Gara Coachworks. And it was raced in 2011 by Tim uh, Timo Glock. He raced in Formula One for Jordan, Toyota, Virgin Racing, and uh, Marussia Formula One teams. An amazing driver. Very cool to have it out there. My only question was, when do I get to drive it? Uh, maybe out of the lobby after the Grand Prix. Who knows? Um, so, but don't forget, as we uh, look forward to the Grand Prix in 149 days, in 142 days, we have the concourse at the Wynn, Las Vegas. And that will be out on the beautiful golf course, which is just a few hundred yards that way. And it really will be one of the most special concourses. The third year it's been held. The second year it's really been on the golf course here at the Wynn. And it is attracting already, I can tell you now, some of the foremost 
car collectors and vendors and OEMs, auto manufacturers in the world, all wanting to be a part of it because car concourse can traditionally be a little bit stale, a little bit static. And what the win is doing is bringing Vegas to one of the biggest uh, areas of the car collecting world. So you're going to have exotics, elite hypercars, uh, some of the latest emerging electric offerings and rare concept and culture cars. It's pretty much going to be the party to kick off Vegas week and head over to the Win Las Vegas website and you can see more about that. Let's talk Canadian Grand Prix. Well, as I said, Max did win it uh, at the circuit Gilles Villeneuve. And if you did follow along, so many ways to watch the races at the moment, whether it's directly online or on the official normal broadcast and so many podcasts about it, you really get an in-depth insight uh, feeling for what goes on during that weekend. And there's so much going on connected to Formula One right now that isn't just about Max. Uh, but what Max did this weekend by bringing home the 100th win for Red Bull was outstanding. I don't think you can really put it any other way than that. By doing 100 wins, they actually joined a very exclusive club, which was Williams, McLaren and Ferrari, who have all won over 100 Grand Prix. And I want to just reflect on that for a second. Think about Williams. For a lot of the new fans to Formula One, especially from the Drive to Survive era, watching the documentary, you'd be, you wouldn't be remiss in thinking that Williams is an also-ran right at the back and struggling to make their way to the front. Well, they were the dominant team in their era. They had such significant success. And seeing them out there, they've won, um, I mean, well over 100 races. So it's quite something for Max and Red Bull to get into that. But a couple of statistics. He ties Senna at 41, Ayrton Senna at 41 wins. He's won 41% of the races ever for Red Bull. He has, that's 100 wins in 19 seasons. They've won on 30 tracks. They've won at Monaco seven times. And to put into perspective how good Max is and the dominating run he had, well, it was also the same for Sebastian Vettel. Sebastian won 38 wins for them. That's 38% of all the wins that Red Bull had came from yet another driver. And it's just incredible. 52 wins from pole and 26 one-twos uh, as they cross the line, which is extraordinary in today's era. And if they win in Austria, that's 10 races in a row. So quite incredible. You might say, when's he going to catch Lewis Hamilton with his incredible tally of wins? Well, they reckon if he carries on at this rate, it'll be by 2026. But uh, first of all, he has to match, uh, which is Prost at 51 wins and Vettel at 53. Anyway, crazy, crazy statistics. And... As I'm recording this right now, I know they're having a huge party back at Red Bull headquarters. And as Christian Horner said, it's all about celebrating the moment. What a milestone. What an incredible uh, success for, for the team and everyone involved. And then it's on to worrying about the next race. I guess the only issue that Max had, which is kind of funny, and if you caught it on social media, I, I really enjoyed it. He hit a bird on lap 11 and he commented on it, but I kept on looking for all the feeds to see if you could see uh, any footage of him hitting the bird, but apparently it nestled nightly up, nicely up there, or what's left of it, uh, nestled up in the air vent, air duct and was his passenger for the entire race. So if Peter get involved, then I apologize. I did actually hit a, a fox one time at uh, Laguna Seca in, in a Daytona prototype, and I promise you it, at over 150 miles an hour, 
it you win. The animal loses. Rather unfortunate. So while Max is out the front, there is an awful lot shaping up behind him. And that's, that's, I mean, I love seeing his dominance, but I'm so excited about what's happening in right behind him. And if you think about it, uh, there was so much going on in the race. You had from 7th to 19th place, they were basically in a train for pretty much most of the race, which shows that when it comes to the regulations, how these team upgrades were working, everyone is getting right there in the window with some fabulous surprises, such as, you know, uh, Albon finishing 7th. I mean, incredible with incredible overtaking moves. So there's so much going on. But there is a question that uh, when Jeremiah, my producer, and I came in this morning, it was the first thing on our minds hat. What is happening to Sergio Perez? And obviously, he's won two races this year. He is an extraordinary talent. But did Monaco break him? Did his disastrous weekend at Monaco when he had a wreck and he had such a bad race, did it smash his confidence so badly that he really is incapable at the moment of getting himself on the same level as Max? He starts every weekend saying, this is the weekend I'm going to do it and I'm going to put everything into it. But my question, and, and I'm really looking forward to talking with Alex about this later, is how can he struggle to get in Q3 in pretty much the equal car to Max? And yet at the end of the race, well, he didn't get into Q3 for the third race in a row. But at the end of the race, he slaps a set of softs on and in one lap gets the fastest lap of the race. I don't know. I was trying to work it out. And I'm, I've been in this sport my whole life. If the car has the potential, he has the potential, and they get it right engineering-wise, why isn't what, what happened in qualifying? So I know it was a tight window with the rain and all that, and you get caught on the back foot. But uh, I'm sure that is a lot of soul-searching going on for, for Sergio, but also that pressure that starts to build on your size, side of the garage, especially as it gets to contract time and things. So I'm sure that he is under an enormous amount of pressure. Uh, and I'm very intrigued to know how the team will handle that. Of course, safety car did help shuffle everything together, but there's so much going on in that mid-pack that is vital to the points that they, they get in, champ in the championship, which also translate to literally tens of millions of dollars. And I've said it before, but of course you need both drivers to be doing well if you want to be uh, at the top of the, or at least fighting for a place in the world championship manufacturer side of things. And you need both teammates to be doing it. Rather like Alex Albon and Logan Sargent. Logan couldn't have had a worse weekend and was forced to retire near the end. But Alex just had stunning overtaking maneuvers, great pit stop strategy, and ended up finishing seventh. So that puts pressure on. And I know Logan's definitely feeling that right now. Look at Lewis finishing third. Now, George Russell very seldom makes a mistake. And I was outstanding. It was, I, I mean, I was astounded when his car snapped from the in car. It didn't look much, did it? He just, he had a lot of opposite lock, hit the wall rear, then front. But when you watch the actual footage from the outside, his car was off the ground as it hit the back. And when he managed to limp back in and then go back out, and they changed the rear right and then obviously the front wing assembly, how was he able to go out and do that and run? And of course, at the end, they said he had a uh, front left. Uh, brake rotor overheating issue, which forced him to, to stop. I wonder if that was actually what was going on. But you can't take a hit that hard in something that thoroughbred, that fragile, and expect to make it to the end of the race. And of course, he didn't. 
My last comment about Canada before we get with Alex is what a podium. And I'm glad that the media reported on it because I was just sitting there thinking to myself, have, have we ever seen this before? Have we ever seen this many champions up on one place? And I love the way Lewis said in his post-race comments, I was honored to be up there with these world champions. Max has two. Alonso has two. Lewis has seven. And let's not forget when they brought on the brilliant Adrian Newey, who we talked about a lot with Mario Andretti the other day, and of course, Danny Sullivan. He worth his weight in gold, quite literally. He has been responsible for 200 Formula One victories. So that, to me, may be the best picture of the year, seeing those guys. Well, Alex Jacks, let's me introduce him. He fell in racing in he fell in love with racing when he was nine years old and was your typical schoolboy who just saw Formula One on the TV, wanted to be a part of it, went on to get with his local news station, worked his way up, ground away, became a disciple of the sport. He knows more than I'll ever, you know, he's forgotten more than I'll ever know. Uh, he's covered Formula One, Formula Two, Formula Three, the W Series, Porsche Super Cup, Goodwood Festival of Speed, Indy 500, even covers the virtual racing series. But I met Alex for the first time two weeks ago at the Le Mans 24 Hours when Lee Diffie uh, invited me into the broadcast booth. Alex was there. I just said a few things uh, to sort of fill some time, like I do. And it was a real honor to meet him. And then, of course, hearing him on Sunday uh, do the race recap, was uh, do the live broadcast, made me realize how good he is. So very excited to have someone that knows all about Formula One, hopefully can answer a lot of our questions. Alex, really great to see you again. So shortly after Le Mans, and welcome to Drive to Win. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's great to speak to you. you. You're in a very glamorous location. I'm in a I'm in a London flat. So well, I think you're winning. Well, most of the time, you are you in a glamorous location, or do you do these shows from? Do you do your Formula One podcast from London? Well, a lot of the it's a split. It has to be a split uh, the way that it's normally done. And uh, so some we do from on site, and some we do from. Uh, from the glamour of uh, a studio just uh, just outside of London. Yeah, I see that. But first of all, I've got to say that meeting you at Le Mans, that was really cool, getting my little 30 seconds with you in, in the booth there. Uh, and then hearing you on Sunday, because I, I flew back from Europe on Sunday night. So on Monday or Sunday night, I watched the, the app, watched, you know, watched your broadcast. And uh, having Ooh. met you and everything... I've got to say, you are bloody good at what you do. I'm just going to throw that. And it, you really are very good, very knowledgeable. So it's it's a pleasure. Oh, I, that's very kind of you to say. Of course, being British, I have no ability to take compliments no, uh, in not. any way. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to brush that off and, and say thank you very much. Yeah, well, good. Well, so before we kick on of talking about the Canadian race, how was Le Mans for you? Because it was an epic race, 350,000 people, Ferrari... At the end, I wish I'd put money on it. But um, well, how was Le Mans for you? How was the whole experience? Well, it was my first time there. So it's a very strange uh, experience to be there as a broadcaster on such an important channel for such an important race and also be taking it in as a fan and a genuine enthusiast of motor racing for the first time. So, uh, you know, for, for a kid like me who got auto sport. Uh, and, and poured over the pages, and and every year there was a special, you know, Le Mans entry, and then you'd see the big names that were going there, you know, 
remembering, of course, your heroics there. Uh, and you'd, you'd see that printed and then you'd see that Bentley were going to join and, and, and all this different excitement. And you get a spy shot like very early in the year yeah. and then <laughs> and then it would come to fruition. Yeah, to, to, to go there for the first time, it is hallowed ground for a reason um, as a spectacle. I've, I don't think I've any, ever seen anything quite like it. And, and bear in mind that I'm in a fortunate position that every single Grand Prix at the moment is sold out. And yet it, it was just, someone was asking me to explain it in Formula One terms, terms. And I was saying, just imagine five Silverstones and just imagine a hundred years of history. And, and you know that for some people it's going to be raw heartbreak. And you know, for some in the field, it's going to be unexpected joy. Yeah. And, and, and it doesn't matter what class it is, you know, there's just so much endeavor going into that, into that performance and not just across the week, but for, for, you know, Lena Gade was in commentary with us and she was saying the day after the race, you're thinking about next year's race. I thought that was such a beautiful way to put it. And you feel that you see that on the expression of the fans and you see that on the expression of the exhausted mechanics at four in the morning when we were coming in to do our, our opening stint in the commentary box of the day. So uh, a, a glorious spectacle and Ferrari to win. That was just a romantic result that, uh, you know, that the century that the centenary demanded, I think. Yeah, it did. You said it so eloquently. That's what you do. I just was excited when I watched the race on Sunday, and let's switch to to Formula One now, that Ferrari needed, as an organization, a boost, right? They needed a lift. Oh, yeah. And Ferrari is, well, it's a massive company. It's a very small racing department in relative terms. And to have, to have, the lift, the boost of their driver of winning, their drivers winning the hundredth. I'm sure that carried some momentum into the factory, don't you? And commit and momentum into Canada because they. I know that it's just emotions, but they did really well in Canada. I thought, you know, they showed promise. How? What's your view on that? They, they did. I completely agree with that. You can read it the positive way or the negative way. The positive way is, oh, fantastic! How wonderful to see the chaps from down the corridor doing brilliantly but then the f1 department's going oh no we had a phenomenal car last year and we didn't get the results we needed uh so was it uh, a little bit of begrudging respect for, across the marinello corridors i think yes was it also a, a timely kick up the backside yes and i think they they delivered delivered good strategy on sunday yeah um and if it had been a dry qualifying i, I fancy ferrari would have been would have been ahead of Hamilton uh, and given Alonso was nursing that car, I think they could have put two cars on the podium. So uh, yeah, the Formula One team looking to emulate what the, uh, what the Le Mans team were able to do. Well, let's stick with the Ferraris right now because everybody, every one of us, I mean, you were a schoolboy fan. I was too. Dad raced for them in 1970. So, you know, obviously a close link there. Yeah. I, I think even the drivers in the pit lane, would love the chance to wear a red race suit, right? I think if you're not going to win, probably a lot of people wish it was Ferrari that, that would win. That's, that's the way I feel anyway. And we all sit there going, oh my God, how do they do that again? I'm, I have no information. I know that was the wrong call. How do you deal with that? Are you in the booth wanting to go, what are you all doing? I mean, you must be going through that in your mind, right? Yeah, there was only one occasion where last year I think I was struggling to relate the sentence in a diplomatic way, and that was Silverstone when they weren't swapping the cars around, when Hamilton was catching both Ferraris. Leclerc had a bit of a damaged car. It was clearly the faster driver. 
they've made some changes to that team in the strategic department that were quite clearly long overdue. The problem is, as you well know with motor racing, it's not like football. You don't get an instant bounce. You have to wait a while to see things change. And, and that's not a small department, the strategy department. That's a group of 12 people, some of them off-site, some of them on-site, that now have to work with a new leader. And I think the Canadian Grand Prix was, was hint of positive change in that department. How, how do you feel they're doing in the cockpit? Because it seems like Charles Leclerc needs to sort of grow an adult pair, right? And, and be able to say, no, I, I feel this, instead of sort of deferring, whereas you you definitely heard this weekend Carlos Sainz going, no, you know, controlling yeah. the plate like a Lewis does, like a Max does, and like an Alonso does. It's an interesting side of his personality that we're seeing come out with Carlos. Because if you look at them side by side, I don't know them, but you just get the feeling that Sainz is a very confident human being, right? With his family, with his background. Yeah. He's, a, he's, a, he's a man's man. He looks like he can take charge. That's, trans, that's translating itself to the cockpit. That's an important yeah. element as a driver, right? You may have those 12 strategy guys, but they've never driven a Formula One car. They've never sat there feeling the vibrations, the tire wear through their hands and feet. How important is it that you allow the driver to have that moment, to have that final call? I think it has to be, it has to be a sensible working relationship. So if you overrule a driver, You've got to communicate it in a way that they're satisfied with. And what we heard at the weekend was Charles was unsatisfied. Mm. And the great thing about motor racing, the wonderful thing, it is, it is driver and machine, right? So he's got to get that out of his head that he's effectively been overruled. Whereas, as you say, Carlos is in a, in a much more direct place where he's been able to go, nope, don't fancy it. Thanks for your suggestion. We're not doing that. Yeah. And some, and it is a contrast between the two of them. And I wonder whether Charles, it'll be interesting to see whether that changes in the coming races because it's cost him before. It cost him at the weekend because he was out in Q2 and he very much should have been in Q3. Um, yeah, I, to be honest, I think that approach will change within the next month. I think you'll hear Charles doing like Carlos does and saying, no, this is what I want. Yeah. Well, you could, you, I also know as a driver, you, you're like, if I'm going to stick my, you know, put my foot down on this, you're going, oh, I hope I'm right. You know what I mean? You, but sometimes <laughs> you have to, you have to just do it. And it is part of the ebb and flow. And I've got to say that that's one of the things that Drive to Survive has actually brought to us in reflection is we know there's an awful lot of radio traffic going on because we see it on the documentary, yes. right? And, um, and it's very direct radio traffic that that I know doesn't reach your broadcast and, and it would be one. And do you get to hear any of that or does it get filtered to you? We, no, it, I tell you what, how it usually works in, um, in practice is that I will key down and ask someone's radio department, whether there's anything that we're not perhaps hearing that gives us a more complete picture. So mm. if there's, you know, sometimes it's being withheld, um, just on a point on the strategy, with the strategy, it's very easy to lose. If you lose a pair of drivers, you're in trouble. And I won't mention the, the team that this happened with, but they lost one driver and the other driver was, was very much on the fence for a, very, for a while. Give them a chance, give them a chance, give them a chance. And then another mistake came and there was an instant clear out. So it feels like Ferrari 
at the moment have not won over Carlos and Charles is trying to be more understanding. If Charles starts rejecting the calls, then you've got the drivers not working with the team. Uh, that said, if Carlos is impressed with what he sees with the strategic team over the next six weeks, you could see that relationship shift. So um, everyone's, everyone's fighting their own corner at the moment. It will be interesting to see. That was the first time in a while where everyone sat up and they were like, okay, Ferrari in a decent edition on Sunday. So let's see if they can keep it going. Good point. Good insight. But the the other thing that's quite interesting we were talking about before the show is it was well publicized that Red Bull spent their money, their wind tunnel time, their development came in. It's like, what a different philosophy. It's much more like most sports. You wouldn't hold back, as my producer Jeremiah said, you wouldn't hold back in football and say, we'll get our best strategy together for, you know, game five, game six. You know, you come in as good as you can be and Red Bull slammed yeah. that down cards on the table other teams are bringing upgrades now and they're obviously making especially like Williams and McLaren I mean it's definitely working but do you see that because their money was spent at the beginning and the others are spending their time and resources if you're allocated now will it narrow towards the end of the year will, did they catch up and but by then Red Bull are a country mile ahead is that how it works country mile ahead and country mile ahead and already thinking about next year's car. If it narrows, it's because Red Bull are turning their attention to next year. And I think it won't be long until they turn attention to next year. So the advantage will whittle away and whittle away. And and then your situation like we did last year, where, um, you know, say George Russell won the Brazilian Grand Prix late on, I could easily see that happening. Uh, But yeah, once they turn their attention to 2024, Mercedes and Martin are trying to claw back ground now, but with a view. To 2024, and Lewis Hamilton was sounding the alarm on this this weekend, saying, "Let's not try and catch them now. If they've turned their attention to next year, let's let's be thinking about the season opener, wherever that may be. Not confirmed yet in in 2020. Um, but I do think it will close up. It will close up towards the end of the year. Obviously, Red Bull have the restricted uh, wind tunnel time in the second half of the year. But you've got to remember, Red Bull got the rules right last year. They just had a very very heavy car." Yeah. As soon as they shed the weight, they've been beaten once. As soon as they got the weight off that car, they've been beaten once. That Grand Prix George Russell. So they have got, to borrow a cricketing phrase, they've got the wood over the rest of the field by an enormous amount at the moment. What's that like inside the paddock? I mean, this is a slightly rhetorical question because every era has its dominance. And I mentioned at the top of the show, you know, Red Bull now joined that elite club, which Williams are a part of. And there's a, there's an enormous amount of the American new Formula One fans that just think Williams is a, is a has-been, not even a has-been. They don't even know they ever were. And, you know, you, yeah. they've won 107 or 117 Grand Prix or whatever. And they, they were the dominating car team in, in period. You, yeah. You've been such a lifelong student of it. The ebb and flow is inevitable. Lewis Hamilton is no worse yes. a driver than he was for seven world championships. And you know he's going to drive his way back. What, how does the paddock react to that Red Bull? Oh, Max won. Well, you know, never easy. He pushes the limit. But how does the, how does the paddock view that? How do other teams view that? That there's got to be an ebb and there's going to be a flow. I think there's a, I think there's an understanding that, as you say, if you let all the teams build their own car every single year, which is the DNA of Formula One, and you have a totally different blank sheet of paper, someone traditionally gets the march on everyone else. Mm. 
Um, and it just so happens if you've got a design genius in your in your team, it, it can be very, very helpful. Yeah. So the, the, paddock, the paddock atmosphere is, is complete respect for what Red Bull are doing. There's an acknowledgement. I think actually the paddock, certainly the drivers are quite relaxed now. It's become quite so apparent that Max Verstappen belongs with the, the great names of Formula One history. Um, and I think, you know, we had that wonderful scene on the podium where you had Alonso, you had a Hamilton and you had Verstappen standing next to Adrian Newey. And I was saying on commentary, have you ever seen a podium like this? Because the amount of wins between them all were incredible. But you mentioned Williams, you mentioned McLaren, and now Red Bull. What's the common denominator? Adrian Newey. <laughs> Williams couldn't keep hold of him. He no. went to McLaren. He won for McLaren. McLaren couldn't keep hold of him. Red Bull deserve a lot of credit on the management side for giving Adrian Newey the terms in which he performs best. Yeah. You know, some years in the past, Adrian knew he hasn't got his uh, eyes across the, the regulations until he's been getting on the plane to Australia. Okay, Some organizations wouldn't be able to cope with that. Other times, he's plugged in. He's figured out what you need to do with the suspension. He's figured it out before anyone else. And the Red Bull ride is outrageous. Everyone else is now updating their cars to come back. But getting Adrian Newey, acquiring him for the team, keeping him happy is the root cause of why Red Bull are now running away with things. So I think there's an understanding and a respect for that in the paddock. How, how excited are you to see, though, as opposed to some of the areas of, areas of dominance before, that second, third, fourth, fifth, seventh to tenth to twelfth, it's very dynamic. We're seeing these young drivers pull off fantastic moves, right? I mean, really... Yeah. Albon, you saw Lando, the way Lando was able to break. I mean, you know, awful to say McLaren is a midfield, you know, pack car team, but, you know, they're working their way to the front. But you're seeing these young guys driving brilliantly. And you're, I've got to say the yeah. commentary does focus on that because Max is, you know, sodded off to another <laughs> country, which well, allows you, you to no, follow, yeah. right? It allows you to follow the racing. Yeah. Well, one thing that we, we very much on... Formula One TV and Channel 4 insist on doing is taking around the houses yeah. and making sure that we cover everyone's story. Yeah. Okay. It's it, it it's not just about the very front battles because there are interesting there are interesting narratives everywhere you look. And you, you speak about the battle behind. I don't think it's ever been closer at the back. I, no. I, I really don't think you know, I've you know this that we've always had traditional back markers. Who's the back marker this year? Sometimes it's Alfa Romeo. Sometimes it's Alfa Tauri. Sometimes it's Williams. Williams go from Barcelona, where they're just the plain slowest team, yeah. to Alex Albon performing heroics. The next car up the road from Alex Albon in Canada was Sergio Perez, who's driving probably by the end of the year, on the evidence we've seen so far, the greatest Formula One car statistically we've ever seen. So it's, it's exciting. A, it's a glorious thing. It's exciting to see people like Alex Albon who've gone up and down the ladder, you know, chucked out of the sport, got a chance in the sport he didn't think he was going to have, and then gets the chance at Williams. He's now a team leader at Williams, and, and he's done it as such a lovely bloke as well. He's yeah. done it as a nice guy and proved that you don't need to be a diva. You don't need to throw things around. You don't need to alienate people, and that was a giant killing result. That car should not have been seventh, and he put it seventh. He did, didn't he? You talk about the divas and the, uh, you know, mm. the nature of... Being a top athlete, 
Le- LeBron James at Le Mans being the host. I mean, he's not there yeah. as Grand Marshal because he was a mediocre human being. He was an elite performer who probably had to make decisions and not make himself friend, the, everyone's best friend to get to the top. Roger Federer, whoever you look at, David Beckham, they're tough, brilliant people. Who in Formula One, I'll rephrase that, social media is allowing us to see into their lives. Obviously, Drive to Survive mm. helped that. Just watching the way they post on Instagram. In the days of Ron Dennis, there was no posting about, look at me, you know, doing this in my new McLaren or whatever, right? Really tough, tough times. I love seeing that. Yeah. But who, if you had to take two of them out for, for a bite to eat and a beer, who, who would you want to take? That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, I would say it kind of links to, I've been very fortunate because not only do I do Formula One, I do Formula Two as well. Yeah. So I get, I get to see the drivers um, almost when they're incomplete, almost before they know who they are. Uh, and I think the season that I love the most uh, covering that championship was 2018, which was Lando Norris, George Russell and Alex Alban. And Alex Alban and George Russell are terrific value. Um, they've been good mates for a very long time. Uh, they're always ripping it out of each other. And they've, they've gone about their racing. You know, they're good communicators. They're nice people. And uh, yeah, I'd probably pick those two. That's really cool. I've got to ask you about Sergio Perez because... I mm. I get um I, I started off the show trying to speculate on this a bit. As a lay I'm not a layman, but as a, I get asked these questions, if you look at it as a as a pure spectator, it looks like Monaco crushed him, you know, mentally. And you get that feeling your side of the garage, they look at you a little different and you, it's all right, mate. Oh, we're still behind you. You know, you make a mistake back. And he's obviously lost his pace. He's driving arguably the best car, Formula One car ever built. He at one point really thought he was in for a, for a shot. But when it comes to pace, I know qualifying was tricky with the rain and being on the yeah. right tires at the right time. But you languish around. I mean, he did make his way to a certain point. But you let, you know, as you say, still several seconds back on album. And then they say, all right, let's go for fastest lap, Sergio. So you come in, you put on a new set of softs, you go out, you get fastest lap of the race. Like, what the flipping hell have you been doing for the other 73 laps? I mean, do you yeah. get what I'm saying? How it's obviously I, I, there. I do. I do. I think it's a great lesson in elite sport in any discipline you want to talk about is incredibly difficult to execute. But I would say that across the board, Formula One drivers are very evenly matched. The mm. difference is the capacity mentally whilst you're driving and your mental energy to come back and do it every single week, every single year. That is Mm. what separates a good driver from a great driver. And Sergio, by his own admission, was trying to win the Grand Prix in FP1. He was trying to get to Max's almost superhuman speed instantly. And Sergio has never been a qualifier. He has never been someone who stands out on Saturday. That's a man who built his career on his understanding of the Pirelli rubber and his ability to turn good stints into great stints. And he's done it up against some superb drivers. The problem he's now got is he's up against a driver who, when he finishes his Formula One career, I have no doubt is going to be mentioned in the same breath as Hamilton, Alonso, Senna, Prost. He's going to be in that bracket. Schumacher as well. 
And Perez is coming up against this problem that good drivers face. He's a multiple Grand Prix winner. He's a lovely chap. He deserves his place in Formula One. But when you try to find two tenths that you don't have, that's when you find the wall in Australia, in Monaco. And in mixed conditions, he's never had the sixth sense that, say, a Lando has or Lewis Hamilton in the early stage of his career. And, and obviously then when he had the, with the car with the most downforce, it was, it was very, very useful to win in the But that is how Perez has got himself into, into tough times. It's about how you respond now. Yeah. He's had a tough run. You're always going to have a tough run. Can you now, the next time it's dry, can you be P2? And, can you go, and can you get all the commentators, all the loud ones like me to go, that's a return to form. That's what he needed. Yeah. And the next time it's a real limited track, that's key for me. If the next time it's a real limited track, which is a Sergio special, when the rear tyres are, uh, are being worn through first, if Max is torching him then, then I think Perez is heading towards, if he's getting annihilated on the tracks where he's strong, then he's heading into Gasly, Red yeah. Bull era, Albon territory of mm. he just can't live with the, the stress yeah. of... Um, and th- and that and that wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a slight against him, but no way is he performing anywhere near close to his ability in the last three weeks. That's a great way of putting it. And I think I know the head game. It's so tough. You yeah. know, everyone's looking at you. You know, you're not you're not living up to it. But also, maybe as you say, he needs to go back to driving and racing the way he knows how to, and not play Max's yeah. game. Like you could never play a Schumacher game. Eddie Irvine realized that. Did what he did. Exactly. Made a fortune. Never had a bad race, <laughs> yeah. right? Because he just he knew how to be number two and uh, win races when your boss doesn't, when the other guy doesn't. Maybe that's 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 what he's got to do. Um, before we let you go, just one other. I, mean, I want to quickly talk about Austria, but the penalties in Formula One are very interesting to us sitting at home without the plethora of information you have, and mm. obviously they have really dire consequences. We saw that at Monaco. Um, Lando doing what he did on Sunday just to like back everyone up to to so they could stack the cars coming into the pits. When you're inside the car, you you do a lot of things yourself. You make a lot of decisions, but you are, as we said a minute ago, relying on a lot of data from your team. It's like quick early yeah. pit releases and stuff. You know, getting in the way. Your driver has nothing to do with that. The guy says go, you go. You know, um, how do you yeah. feel about the penalties? Sometimes great. I know it's not an easy situation. Uh, I think with I think it's been pretty clear under the safety car for a while that they've they've been told that they were going to clamp down on that. I mean, it's such a complex, multifaceted sport that some of the penalties you will just. I always think as a as a lead commentator, I always think I'm always very fortunate to be uh, sitting or standing next to a a brilliant driver who's been there and done it. Mm. So I want to hear what they think. Yep. But a lot of the time, I'll give you a great example. I thought Yuki Tsunoda's penalty in Barcelona was completely wrong. Yeah. I thought it was completely the wrong, uh, wrong way to go. Had a check on social media, 50-50. Okay, that's the way it's going to go. Uh, the one thing that I think really needs to change is when sporting penalties, uh, four hours, five hours after the qualifying session or the race, and they've gone up to see, they've gone up to see the stewards and they've taken their team manager and they've pleaded their case and the stewards give them the same penalty that the majority of us watching would have given them 30 seconds after yeah. seeing the replay 
And I think that element has to be is antiquated and has to go. Because for a great example in Spain, Pierre Gasly was able to argue his two impeding penalties didn't didn't go to plan. He got two impeding penalties. But Yuki Tsunoda gets it mid-race there and then doesn't get a chance to argue. So I'd like that situation. Sporting penalties, I'd like decided in race. almost real time if that's, yeah, in race or very quickly after the session and not after qualifying four hours afterwards. You don't know what the grid looks like yeah. because that's when I think it, it does spoil that. Yeah, it, and it ruins it's, it's the immediacy for the fans. You know, you go home, go, oh, my driver did well and then you wake up and it's it's all changed. Exactly. You know, exactly. N- not cool. Um, give us a little clue to, you know, for the people watching this, Formula One is is blown up here in the States. As you know, the, the fan following is amazing. What should people, give some advice if someone says, what should I look for in a Grand Prix to make my viewing experience better? You know, mm. you've got a lot more access to it, the timing and scoring and, you know, all the team stuff. What should a, a, the casual fan wanting to get involved look for? a little bit more to make it more rewarding? Uh, the best way to do it, I would always say, is try try and pick out a driver who's out of place on the grid so you can follow their progress. Mm. So, for instance, a Charles or a, or a Sergio this weekend. Um, pick yourself an underdog and and constantly be watching the gaps on the left-hand side timing tower. Yeah. That, that, that Those are the three ways because that's a great way if you're maybe a fan coming into it, maybe off the back of Drive to Survive, maybe you've discovered it through Formula One's digital channels. The way to expand your understanding of the race reading is to pick three different stories and, and follow them on the left-hand side of the timing tab because then you'll go, oh, let's see if Alex Al- – hey, I like Alex Albert. He put on the, the, the slick tires in qualifying yesterday. Let's see if he can do well. Oh, they've done something different again. You know, and then you're expanding yeah. your idea of why Williams took the risk and you can read up on that and you can look at his social media where he was saying in the interview afterwards, he's like, yeah, they love to leave me out there. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the, the man's absolutely sweating for his life out there and, uh, and they like to, to live you out there. But yeah, always, always keep your eyes on the timing tower on the left-hand side and, uh, and pick three, three starters that you want to keep your eye on. And then the great commentary, wherever world you listen to it, I think we have a, a great group of Formula One commentators, oh, yeah. no matter which channel you're watching on. And uh, they'll keep you updated on, on the main stuff. And you can, you can enjoy your, your subplot, if you like, on the left-hand side. Uh, good, good advice. All right, before we go, um, of Austria, I guess they'll be on track in 10 days' time from now. I mean, by the time we watch this, it'll be a week. Um, who's, who's busiest? This week, who's gone back to the factory? I know Christian Horner said we're going to have a big party and then get on with the work uh, <laughs> and they can afford to do that. Who's going to likely evolve the most before we get to Austria? Uh, evolving the most, yeah. I think those Red Bull caterers are, uh, are in for a yeah. good time <laughs> once again. Um, so that's a, that's an invitation we'd want, right? That is an invitation uh, oh, I yeah. would want. Yeah, the, the 100th. Grand Prix win. I mean, oh. phenomenal celebration for them. Uh, I think Williams will be pouring over the data to see that their update. Uh, they had it on Alex Albon's car. They've they've had a. They didn't get a lot of running with it in comparison to, to Logan Sargent, but it looks like it's a step forward. Uh, Aston as well mm. will want to see whether okay they've had both cars run to the end there, so they'll be doing their homework uh, and hoping that they've got a chance. The pro- the problem with Austria is that, and this is that this is the infuriating thing for the rest of the paddock. The problem for Austria is that Max Verstappen, if you put him in a car that was two tenths slower than the rest of the field, has won Grand Prix Austria in the past. Mm. 
he just goes brilliantly here. So I think also very busy, the drivers trying to work out how on earth they're going to get near him. Um, because this is a Verstappen special circuit. It's one of his best on the entire calendar. But I think Aston Martin and Williams will be will be busy. And I think Ferrari will be slightly buoyed by what they saw uh, in Canada. And they've traditionally gone well in, in Austria as well. So they'll be hoping for a, a return to podium contention. Well, it's been so good. Thanks so much, Alex. And I will look forward to hearing you in a couple of weeks' time. Um, I'd love to do this again. Uh, I, I don't know if you, are you going to do the Vegas race on site. You know, I am absolutely doing the Vegas race on site. It's going to be not just a motor racing spectacle. That's going to be a sporting spectacle. Oh, I promise you. Here's a little stat for you. The It Go is on. projected the econo- economic impact of Formula One is going to be two and a half to three times that of the Super Bowl that's coming up here. No. And that's good. I hadn't heard that. Yeah, that is going to be wild, wild, right? They've worked that out. So <laughs> remember, Formula One's global Super Bowl is American, but it's still massive. So... Uh, yeah, well, maybe we'll get time. You can come and sit in here in my fancy studio. So uh, it'd be nice. That sounds like a plan. That sounds like a plan. It's been, it was great to meet you in Lamar. And uh, it's, uh, it's been wonderful to be on your show. Thanks a lot. Take care, mate. Good luck. Well, obviously, super fun uh, talking with Alex. You learned so much there. And that is the beautiful thing about the Formula One broadcast. They bring in the best talent who know the the sport the best and, and super deep and insightful stuff. Well, We're coming to the end of the show, but remember when it comes to the Grand Prix here, the Heineken Silver Grand Prix of Las Vegas, the epicenter, one of the founding partners of that Grand Prix is the win in Las Vegas. And you can go to winlasvegas.com forward slash experiences slash F1. And you can find out about all the various packages that they have for you to look into getting yourself here. From the Grandstand package to the Paddock Club to the win, Grid Club all the way to, yes, the million-dollar package, which is rare air indeed, but I'm sure for those of you that could afford it, those of them, whoever they are, they're going to have an amazing time and, and be here in uh, in Las Vegas, as will we. Well, we can't wait uh, for that. It's, it's now 149 days away. Uh, thanks for watching. Next week, I, I've got a really fantastic guest. I'll, I'll be dropping that on social media a bit during the week. If you do have any great comments about what, how we can improve the show, who you'd like to see us talk to, just let me know. But I will see you a week from now and enjoy the, enjoy the week.